Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. We'll read the whole passage to you this morning, then we'll focus on just a few verses, starting in verse 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who he has given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. You may not be familiar with a, to me it was a more unfamiliar hymn. Uh, for some of you it may be a familiar one that says these words, Love came down at Christmas. Love all lovely, love divine. Love was born at Christmas. Star and angel gave the sign. Worship we the Godhead. Love incarnate, love divine. Worship we our Jesus. But wherewith for sacred sign. Love shall be our token. Love be yours, love be mine. Love to God and all men, love for plea and gift and sign. That's from the hymn, Love Came Down at Christmas. And you know, it's true. It, uh, Christmas is a time where we celebrate and we look to and we remember the fact that God has loved us and he has chiefly demonstrated that by sending his son into the world. John 3.16, for God so loved the world, right, that he gave his only begotten son. It was God's love that motivated God uh, in sending Jesus to save the world from his sin, from our sin. We, we can't forget that the baby that was born in a manger came on a mission. He, he, was, he was sent by God. He was given by God. There was purpose in his coming. And it wasn't just so we can, you know, sing sweet songs and tell sweet stories. Uh, it was a, a radical mission to save the world from peril, from wrath, to, to save sinners. And it was going to involve uh, quite a bit of heroism as he was going to have to die for our sins, lay down his life, taking the wrath of God, as this passage here even points to, so that we can escape God's wrath and experience reconciliation and being made right with God. It's no wonder that at Christmas we celebrate uh, mainly in a lot of ways by giving gifts, right? All through our culture, even people that aren't Christian give gifts at Christmas. And, and all those gifts that you receive this Christmas or give this Christmas, let that be a reminder to you that it points to the fact that we celebrate the greatest gift of all that happened at Christmas and God sending His Son. So, but, you know, the whole idea of Christmas, one thing that we should take away every year is that this morning and this Christmas, you don't have to wonder if God loves you. You don't have to be iffy about that this morning. Uh, even on your worst day, and you wake up and you've had just, you just have the worst day possible, on your worst day, God loves you. And so even on the day you feel unloved and unlovable at your worst, 
you can be encouraged that Christmas is a resounding I love you from God to the point that really all of the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are involved in exclaiming to you this morning, God loves you. And in this passage, we see the Godhead working together. We see the Father, we see the Son, and we see the Holy Spirit working in unison to convey to us God's love for us. We're going to see that here in this passage as we walk through it. As we've walked through Romans 5 the last few weeks, we started with how we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ in Romans 5.1. And because we, if you're a believer this morning, if you've come to God by faith in Christ and you have been reconciled to God, so now instead of being at war with God, you're at peace with God. And you want to be at peace with God, not at war with God, we said, because God doesn't lose wars, right? He wins every time. And so when, as, as sinners, we've declared war on God, which is quite foolish, but God has offered terms of peace. He has sent His Son to make peace with us by dying for us on the cross, and when we come to Him by faith, we get peace with God. We get reconciliation. We're not just neutral with God. We're children of God through faith in Christ. And we get all the benefits of peace with God, including hope, right? Hope of the glory of God being restored to the, and, and, and achieving that for which God created us, a, a sinless state, and joy in the midst of any and all circumstances because our joy is rooted in Christ so we can, as the passage says, rejoice in God, rejoice in our suffering, rejoice in the hope of glory. And we get to understand and know like never before how God loves us. You know, at the end of verse 4 there, Paul says character, or proven character, produces hope. And then he says this about hope, our hope in Christ. He says, hope does not put us to shame. Because when the Bible talks about hope, we said last week, it's not some wish upon a star. Like, you know, it's not like I hope my car cranks this morning, or I, or I hope this happens. Like, we use it in our culture where there's a lot of doubt, like flipping a coin, right? Like, I hope my team wins the game, right? We don't know, I hope. No, it's, it's expectancy. It's a, it's, a, it's a certain expectation. There's not doubt in it. There's expectancy and certainty in it. And so he says, this kind of hope does not put us to shame. That phrase there, put us to shame, means to humiliate. He says, your hope will not humiliate you, Christian, is what he's saying. Well, how could it humiliate us? Here's how hope humiliates you. If you never realize it, if you hope in Christ, but it all turns out to be wishful thinking, fairy tales. As one very noted scientist in our nation said some years ago, fairy tales, just wishful thinking Christianity. And if it is just fairy tales and wishful thinking, if it's not really real, it's not really true, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if we have hope only in this life, if we in this life only have hope, then we are of all men most to be pitied. In other words, if... If Christianity's a sham, if Christianity's a farce, if, if, if the whole Christmas story and the Easter story that we talk about and we celebrate, if it's all just not true, then we are the world's chief fools. But Paul says, this hope does not put us to shame. It does not hum humiliate us. In other words, he's saying, you're not going to get to the end of your life and have egg on your face or your foot in your mouth. At least not for your faith. You might have your foot in your mouth, I don't know, but not because of your faith. No, 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 no. He says, this hope does not put us to shame because it's not built upon wishful thinking. It's built upon God's promises. 
And if God be God, then His promises be true, and His promises be certain, and God's promises are more certain than anything that you can see with your eyes. And one day you will see all this with your eyes, but in this life, it's hope that it's hope that we look to that it will be fulfilled, that one day we will spend eternity with God, with Christ, without sin, in a glorified state, in a new heaven and a new earth, with Jesus Christ ruling and reigning. All that's what we long and hope for. And Paul says, that hope does not put you to shame. You won't have egg on your face at the end. You're not going to be humiliated. It's worth it, is what he's saying. And he said, here's how you know it's worth it. God's love for you. God's love for you. And God has communicated his love for you in two chief primary ways, he says. It's the Holy Spirit and the Son of God and Father God working together to communicate this to God's people. Two points this morning. Number one, God pours His love through the Holy Spirit. God pours His love through the Holy Spirit. If you're a believer this morning, you can know that your hope is not going to put you to shame because God pours His love into your life, into your heart, through the Holy Spirit. God the Father has poured His love into your heart, if you're a believer this morning, through the Holy Spirit. That is God's promise in Romans 5.5 for you. It's one thing to hear I love you. It's another thing to experience and to know you're loved. You may have heard someone tell you I loved you and didn't believe it. You may have told someone you loved them and didn't, and, and didn't mean it. But at the end of the day, it's totally different when you hear and understand but, and you know that you're loved. Here, he's not speaking to your heart being filled with love for God. Now, the Bible teaches that. 1 John is very clear on that. Listen, 1 John is very clear. When you become a believer in Christ, if you're a Christian this morning, the Bible is very clear that your heart is changed and that you become a person who loves God. Christians are not primarily people who have prayed prayers and, and went through rituals and come to church on Sunday and know some Bible verses and sing some songs. That's not primarily how you know who a Christian is. Christians are people who have been radically reconciled to God by faith in Jesus Christ and their allegiances to Him and Him alone. And they have been transformed from the inside out into people that love God. The number one way you know you're a Christian is you love God. You are radically devoted to God. God is your supreme love. First John is all about how to know that you are God's child. And the main takeaway is you'll love God. And that will work its way out in various things in terms of your behavior and your obedience to God and your desire for God and your hunger and thirst for the Word of God, all those sorts of things. So, yes, God will pour His love into your heart in the sense of you'll become someone who loves God, but that's not what He's even talking about here. All that was free. That's not what He was even talking about. Here's what He's talking about. He's saying, you'll be filled with an understanding of God's love for you. How about that? You'll know and understand in a unique and special way that you are loved by God. God pours His love into your heart. He floods is what it means. The word pour there is the same word that's used in Acts 2 to talk about how the Holy Spirit's poured out at Pentecost. It's, it's a word used in, in other places to talk about the, the pouring of the Holy Spirit. It, how God, it means literally to flood your heart, flood your life with His love. And see, believers have the Holy Spirit in their life. He says he does this through the Holy Spirit. And when you become a believer, the Holy Spirit, we've talked about this before, takes up residence in your life, comes to live in your life, to reside in you. And when that happens, he floods your heart with God's love. 
Titus 3, 5 and 6 says that God saved us not because of works done by us in our righteousness, but according to His mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ. He poured out the Holy Spirit on us. There's that word. Romans 8, 9, just a few chapters after the passage we read this morning, says, You are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. And anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. So how do I know if I'm a Christian? If the, I can tell you how way you can know you're not. If God's Spirit is not in your life, which will lead to Him actively working in your life to change you and to make you more like Christ. If there's no tangible evidence of the work of God's Spirit in your life, then there's no tangible evidence that you belong to God. And He says, if you don't have the Spirit, you don't have Christ. It's very clear. But believer, you've got the Spirit. That's the point. If you... say. Do I, how do I know if I have the Holy Spirit? If you've genuinely turned from your sin and genuinely embraced Christ alone as Lord and Savior, you've been given the Holy Spirit. You don't have to pray an extra prayer for that. You don't have to do an extra little thing. You don't have to run around the building and do some extra stuff and, and read some extra stuff. And It's not like a class you graduate to. The moment you believe, genuine belief, whether you are 7 or 70, the Holy Spirit came to take up residence in your life from that point forward. And God's presence changes everything. God's presence changes everything. If God has taken up residence in your life, things are going to change. That's why the Bible talks about the fruit of the Spirit. You've heard that? We put it on like t-shirts and coffee mugs and stuff like that. Right? Monogram it on things. It's some of the most convicting passages in all the Bible, right? And we like to like monogram it or something. I don't know. Love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. What the Bible says is when you belong to Jesus, those things become present in your life in an increasing measure. It's the fruit of God's Spirit in your life. And when you're yielding your life to Him as you should be as a believer, you'll see a growing in those areas. Presence changes everything. But here he's talking about something else. He's talking about God's Spirit being present in your life and you experiencing God's love because of that and understanding how God loves you. He's saying you'll know with certainty that you're loved by God. See, it makes sense that if God is love, as 1 John 4 teaches us, verses 8 and 16 and 1 John 4 says that God is love. If God is love, then if the Spirit of God is in your life, then it makes perfect sense that His presence is going to lead you to experience what it means to be loved by God because He's going to bring God's love. God is love, and if God takes up residence in your life, you're going to experience God's love in your life and know that you're loved by God because He's there. He's in your heart. He's in your life, and presence changes everything. My little boy is like our little family's comedian. His name's Cannon, and he's four, and he likes to tell jokes, and he's got pretty good comedic timing, better than I do. But sometimes, I mean, sometimes his, his, his humor, you know, it, it, it gets a little offensive. And so he, he's made, he give you body image problems, to be honest. He's made fun of things with me, my smell, my, you know, shape, you name it, uh, haircut. I mean, he'll, he, we, we're really working on that. So he's, he's really hadn't learned the sticks and stones things yet. But uh, he, he's, he's our little comedian, right? He likes to be funny. He likes to make you laugh. And because he lives in our house, there's very little un- laughing moments from time to time. Every day there's going to be at some point where we're going to experience an, some, some extra laughter because he brings his humor with him. He brings his joy with him into our house. And I'm it's, it's, it's because that's just part of who he is and how God's made him. And 
I'm telling you, when the Holy Spirit comes and takes up residence in your life, it's absurd to think he does not bring and fill your heart with the love of God if God is love and the Holy Spirit is God. I've never heard someone right after getting saved say, I just don't think God loves me. Have you ever heard that? Like a new believer say, I just don't believe God loves me. That's not at all what a new, that's what they say before they become a Christian. After they become a Christian, like, I can't believe how much God loves me, right? Every, it totally changes. Now, years later, you might go through difficult times. You might go through hard times. I'm not saying you're always going to feel the same way. That's not the point. The point is, the source for knowing and understanding that you are deeply loved by God resides in your life forever from the moment of belief. And you can be well assured this morning that you're loved by God. And if you don't feel that assurance this morning, if you're a believer and you know you're a believer this morning and you say, I, sometimes I just don't feel like God loves me, you may be grieving the Holy Spirit of God in your life. Ephesians 4.30 says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom we're sealed for the day of redemption. He, he's a person. He's got a personality. He feels things. He knows things. He thinks things. He says things. He has a will and a mind. And when we sin, when we rebel against His will in our lives, we grieve Him. And we may not experience the blessings of the Spirit in our life to the quite the degree that we should. And it's really on us, not on Him. He's always, he's always communicating God's love. Sometimes we're just not in a position to hear it, to listen. And we can grow in understanding God's love for us. And did you know one of the chief things about being a Christian, one of the ways God wants you to grow, one of the key things communicated in the New Testament is that you grow in understanding how much God loves you in Jesus. You say, that sounds like simple VBS stuff. I'm telling you, one of the deepest truths in all the Bible is how much God loves you in Christ. You're going to spend the rest of eternity, Christian, trying to understand how much God loves you in Christ. It is this, this it's the depths have not been fully explored yet. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 3. It's a little lengthy, but let me read it to you. Chapter 3, verses 14 through 19. Paul says, this is why I bow my knees before the Father. This is why I pray for you, church in Ephesus from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of God's glory, His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit, Holy Spirit, in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend. Now, that's getting good. He said, I want you to have this strength given to you by the Holy Spirit to understand, to comprehend something. With all the saints, all the believers all around the world, what is the breadth, the length, and the height, and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. He says, you, Ephesus, you want to know what keeps me on my knees for you? Is that you'll just, that you'll know that you'll have the strength to know through the Holy Spirit and to comprehend, because this is spiritually discerned, how much God loves you in Jesus. Because then and only then will you be filled with the fullness of God. So, this is something we can grow in. And that means, that means there, there might be times in life where you sense God's love in your life more than other times. Just like there's times where you grow faster than others. Kids are that way too, right? One minute you're looking at them and you're like, are they shrinking? And then like the next week you go and they're like, shot up a foot? It's weird, right? Growth kind of, it's generally steady over the course of time, but sometimes you have these growth spurts. That happens in the Christian life as well. Sometimes you have a little growth spurt. Man, you, just, you are experiencing, you've never felt more loved by God. 
But then when you go through a difficult time and a hard time, you begin to question things or sin ends up in your life. You make some poor choices. And you start asking questions that you never would have asked in those other times when you were growing spiritually. That's not because God's left you. That's because you're no longer listening. God has poured His love into your heart through the Holy Spirit whom He has given to you if you're a believer in Christ Jesus this morning. And we need to know we're loved by God. There's few things more important, if anything, probably nothing more important for a Christian to understand than that you are deeply loved by God. Can there be anything more reassuring to anyone than knowing that the person that, create, the person that knows you best loves you most? That's the most important thing. That's why when a stranger says, hey, I love you, brother, that doesn't really mean a thing to you. Let's be honest. You're like, I don't even know your name. Nice to meet you. Merry Christmas. You know, we'll move along. I can't remember. But when someone who knows you well, when, even when you have done something stupid or foolish or embarrassing or harmful, looks at you. When a mama says to a prodigal son, I love you. When a... When a when a daddy says to a prodigal son, yeah, you, you've brought some shame and humiliation, but I deeply love you. There's nothing that means more than that kid, than that person. See, it's, you want to know that you're loved the most by the person that knows you the most. And nobody knows you better than God. He created you. He made you. And so there's really nothing more important for you than to know and to understand how much God loves you. And so God has made sure that you can know that. He's taken up residence in your life if you're a Christian. And he communicates, he pours, he floods, he, he sheds his love in your heart through the Holy Spirit. So it's, it's something you can experience, it's experiential, but it's also something tangible. Number two, so not only does God sh pour his love into your heart through the Holy Spirit, the Father and the Spirit working together here, but God has shown his love through the work of Christ. There's tangible evidence. Look out there and see it and remember it forever evidence of how much God loves you in Christ. God the Father sent the Son. That's what verse 6 picks up with. He, start, he goes, let's get past this experiential, subjective kind of stuff, and let's get to very objective stuff, as the commentators would tell you. While we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the godly. One will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows, He displays, He proves His love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Very similar to the passage that was read in 1 John chapter 4 at the beginning of the service. God's love made manifest among us that God sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Notice the timing of Christ's work. He says, while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for us. At just the right time in God's, first of all, prophetic calendar. Galatians 4, Paul says in verses 4 and 5, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son. God's been working a prophetic calendar since the very beginning. Ever since in Genesis 3, right, when He looked at Eve and He said, your offspring is going to crush the head of this serpent. Ever since then, God's been working, even before then, but God has been working this prophetic calendar from eternity past to bring about his will in Jesus Christ. 
And so you can go through the Old Testament and you can read the prophecies and at just the right time God gave him a king and then David came along and God made a promise to David and you, that we skipped over Abraham, right? And you can go all the way through and follow the promises of God and the Messiah through the Old Testament and then you get to the New Testament and at just the right time, prophetically, Jesus was born. Jesus was born. The Messiah. The Christ. But here, he's talking more he came at the right time in light of our spiritual predicament. That's the meaning here. While we were still weak, he says. Morally weak, helpless, sick, unable, incapable is what that means. We were incapable of saving ourselves. In need of rescue. Unable to please God. Unable to fulfill the purpose for which we were created. We were too weak to do that. Spiritually and morally weak. If you feel morally weak this morning, I got good news for you. If you haven't figured out yet that you're morally weak this morning, I got good news for you. See, we were the distressed ones, the weak ones, the ones in need of the hero. Now, I know men don't like to think of ourselves as needy or weak. We don't even like to stop and ask for directions. I hate doing that. Right? We don't like to read the directions when we're putting the Christmas toys together. We like to think we know it all. We can handle it. We don't, last thing we want, no man ever wants to convey weakness, right? That's not why I'm, why, I mean, it's just not on the man's radar to want to convey that in any way. But before God, you need to understand something this morning. We are incredibly weak. And there's only one way to come to Jesus and walk away with Jesus, and that is to come weak, incapable of saving yourself, incapable of accomplishing in your life what God wants accomplished in your life, of being the person God ultimately wants you to be. We were weak. Then came Jesus. That's the point. He says we were ungodly, not just incapable, disqualified. Ungodly, what is that? The opposite of godly, <laughs> right? Everything that God, we, we were the un, we were the non, we were the negative. It's not just that you, you know, could have been godly or no, you were ungodly is what he says. We were ungodly. Not, I don't feel like I'm, I'm, I'm godly. No, 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 you're ungodly, right? You're the opposite. We're the opposite is who we are when Christ came. When Christ died for mankind. And the whole point is, is that God didn't ask for humanity to clean themselves up before he sent his son. He came at the right time when we needed him. Notice the magnitude of Christ's work. You know, if someone tells you you've got a relative maybe that's passed away, there's a distant relative that you knew not of, blah, 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 and they've passed away and they've left you a lot of money. <laughs> got an amen. <laughs> Your first question is, how much? Don't you want to know who they are? Yeah, how much? You know? <laughs> and they say, a lot. And you're like, well, that's vague. <laughs> right? That sounds like good news, but a lot to one person, a lot to another person. Everybody defines a lot differently, don't they? It's kind of subjective, a lot. It's kind of vague. And so God doesn't say, I love you. How much? A lot. Paul doesn't write, hey, God loves you. How much? A lot. No, he says, the point that he shows his love for you and that while you were a sinner, his son died for you. That's how, it, it, there's nothing vague about that. It's very specific to the vastness and to the measure of God's love for sinners. He says, one will scarcely die for a righteous person, but perhaps for a good person one will dare to die. In other words, you know, maybe someone would lay down their life for someone who they felt was worthy, a good person. 
maybe you step in front of the bus for a good person. Or maybe you don't really know and you've just, you know, got that heroic nature and, and you lay down your life for someone that you're not really sure what they are. But he says, but God shows his love for us and that while we were the worst of the worst, the sinners, the enemies, the wicked, the, one, the rebels, that's when Christ died for us. When we were unworthy, ungodly, God, Christ didn't die for us after God cleaned us up. He didn't die for us after we were spirit-filled, glorified saints. No, he died for us while we were sinners, he says. When you were a slave to your sin, when you were a slave to your pride and your lust and your greed, God loved you. When you were filled with anger and hate and bitterness, God loved you. Rebellious and foolish and ignorant, God loved you. When your sin made you stupid, God loved you. When you were filled with self-righteousness and hypocrisy, playing a religious game, a churchy game, being a hypocrite, God loved you. Jesus came to die for sinners. Not saints. Sinners. He turned sinners into saints. <laughs> J.I. Packer wrote in his excellent, well-known book, Knowing God, he says this, it is staggering that God should love sinners, yet it is true. God loves creatures who have become unlovely, and one would have thought unlovable. There was nothing whatever in the objects of his love to call it forth. Nothing in us could attract or prompt it. Love among persons is awakened by something in the beloved. But the love of God is free, spontaneous, unevoked, and uncaused. He didn't look down and say, oh, you're so cute. Oh, look, they're trying so hard. They mean well. How can you not love them? <laughs> he didn't love you because of you. He loved you because God is love. It's in his character. It's in his nature. And he chose to love you. And he chose to love me when we were unlovable. When anyone else, if we would have done to them what we've done to God, they would not love us. Would not. Say, not even my mama, not even your mama. Not if you had done to her what you've done to God. Because we can't really understand that. We can't really mind that, we can't really understand that gap because we don't understand what it means to be God and to be holy and to be just and to be perfect and to create people for your glory and for them to rebel in wickedness we don't like to use words like that to describe ourselves but that's when jesus died for us when we're wicked when we're sinners mere human love may allow someone to die for a good person but he says god love god's love is in a different category that christ died for us when we were the opposite of all that and notice the sacrifice of christ's word he died for us, for us, on our behalf, in our place. It has been said the heart of the gospel is this, Jesus in my place, four simple words. Substitution, we call it. Christ died as our substitute, in our place, in our stead. We should have been the ones that suffered the wrath of God. We should have been the ones that had to pay for our sins. We should have been the ones suffering in that way. And apart from Christ, we will be the ones that suffer for our sins. But 
Christ died for us, in our place, in our stead, as our substitute. Now, sometimes, sometimes you don't want a substitute. I remember when I was in high school, my ninth grade year playing baseball, I was on the B team. Now, if you don't know what the B team means, I guess B, I don't know if B stood for bad. And so if you were, if you were uh, not good enough to be on the varsity team, right, you're on the beach. So I was in ninth grade, which that was kind of an expected place to be. So I played ninth grade. But there was a senior that played on the B team, and there was much more of a chance that he was going to get to play with the varsity. So he would get the bat for me. I would go play in the field, and he would what they call DH for me, designated hit. In other words, I got to do the less fun thing, stand in the field and wait on a ball to be hit at me at 70 miles an hour. And he got to do the more fun thing, which was go bat, right? I didn't like that. Didn't like it one bit. I remember that. Just kind of being irritated by it. Probably didn't have the best attitude about it. Because I wanted, the, I didn't want a substitute hitter. I wanted to hit. I needed to, I needed to get better. I had three years of high school left, man, you know. Sometimes you don't want a substitute. Sometimes you don't want somebody to take your place, right, to take your spot. But in this case, <laughs> you'd be hard to find a volunteer who would want to take your spot. Who wants to be your substitute and take the wrath of God, especially when they're innocent and you're guilty. Only one person would do that, God. O only God has that much love in their heart. Only God. And so God the Son, Jesus Christ, comes and He stands in our way. He dies for us in our place. He says, since we've been, in verse 9, since we've been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. You'll never have to experience the wrath of God. If you're a believer this morning, you're never going to go to hell. Merry Christmas. <laughs> I don't know what kind of day you've had. That's good, that's good news, right? You're, never. You say, there's no chance whatsoever. There's no chance whatsoever. No matter how bad it gets, no matter how hard it gets, you can have the worst day ever, right? You can lose your job 12 times today. And I'm telling you, good news, you're not going to hell ever if you're a Christian. Saved from the wrath of God forever. 1 Thessalonians 5 says, God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. You're not only not going to hell, you're going to heaven, right? You're not just being spared wrath, you're being gifted salvation in Christ and glorification in Christ and one day a sinless state and a sinless place to be with God in Christ. Well, what if I'm not a Christian? See, this whole passage is written to Christians in Rome. What if you're not a Christian? Here's my question. Are you a sinner? I don't like that word. Christ died for sinners. And having his death applied to your account begins with understanding you're a sinner. He died for sinners. He didn't die for people that don't think they need him. Now let me make this clear. He died for everybody. But my point is this, you can't have it applied to your account until you recognize that you need him, right? That's my point. So, yeah, even if you're here this morning, you say, I don't think I'm a sinner. Well, he still died for you. You just don't know you're a sinner. My point is, before you can have it applied to your account, you need to realize and recognize in your heart and in your mind that you are a sinner. And we all, if we really got honest when nobody else is around, we know, we know we're sinners. And most of us don't have a problem with admitting that. In fact, some people would go a step further and they would say, well, you just don't really know what I've done. You're talking about the love of God. You don't know what I've done. There's things I've done that most people don't know about. How can God love me? God's got one category for the people he loves and that Christ died for. 
sinner. Sinner. And whether that means you've sinned a lot or you've sinned a lot or you've sinned a whole lot, Christ died for sinners. So I don't even know if I believe in God. It doesn't change anything in terms of how he feels about you today. He still loves you. Christ still died for you. So if you don't know Christ today, I urge you to come to God and to come weak. That's when Christ died for us, while we were weak, incapable of doing it on our own, needing his help. We need to admit our need, confess our sin, turn from our sin, embrace Christ by faith this morning, believing he's our substitute, that he died in our place and that he rose again and that the only way we can be right with God is through what he's done. That's where salvation begins. And if you're a Christian this morning, if you're a believer this morning, the triune God wants you to be assured of God's love for you today. His spirit has been given to you, pouring his love into your heart. The first advent is proof of God's love, how he sent his son to to die for us. And if you need to be reassured today, if you need to be encouraged today, you don't have to look any further than the cross. He goes on to say in Romans 8, verses 38 and 39, down in verse 39, the end of Romans 8, that great chapter, that not height or depth or anything in all depth or anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ. That's how much God loves us in Jesus, that not sin or death or hell, nothing can separate us from God's love. He loves you now. He loves you tomorrow. He loves you yesterday. He loves you always. He loves you forever. Nothing will ever separate you from God's love in Christ. What do I do with that? How do I live in light of that? Well, those who are loved are supposed to love. That's why First John, we read at the beginning of the service, said if God has so loved us, First John 4, 11, we also ought to love one another. See, love experienced in our lives is supposed to lead to love being expressed through our lives. That's why First John says if you hate your brother, you know not God. That's why First John makes it very clear. If you're filled with hatred... If you're not filled with love for man and for God and for your brothers and sisters, if you're not filled with love but are rather filled with hate, then how can you say you know God? Right? See, love experience, and we've experienced what it means to be loved by God in Christ, it should lead to us sharing and living a life of love, loving other people. That doesn't mean just saying, I, don't mean saying I love you a lot. The Bible's very clear. It means being willing to meet physical needs and to help people and to, to weep with the weeping and to, to hurt with the hurting and, and to help those we can help and, to, and to, to engage in life and to, and to love people, to love people like God has loved us. So, this Christmas, when you're tempted to hold a grudge, to withhold forgiveness, to spread gossip, or to respond unkindly to someone. We need to remember that we were a whole lot worse to God than anyone's been to us when Christ died for us. God loved us when we were at our worst. So maybe this Christmas we can make an extra effort to love people when they're not necessarily always at their best. Today maybe you need to trust Jesus. Maybe today, fourth week of Advent, December 18th, is the day that the Holy Spirit has convicted your heart and shown you your need for Christ and shown you what he's done for you in Christ. And today, you need to respond 
and turning from your sin and embracing by faith Jesus as Lord and Savior. If you've never done that, I invite you to do that today, even right where you sit, to just call on him in your heart to save you. Today, if you're a believer, as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper in just a moment, I want you to reflect on God's love for you and Christ's death for you. And ask God to help you this Christmas and at all times by the power of the Holy Spirit to be filled with the knowledge of his love so that you have the security and the strength to go forth and to love others well in the name of Jesus. Let's pray.